Welcome back. I want to take a quick second to tell you about our sponsor of today's episode of North American Deer Talk, CNE Wildlife Products. CNE Wildlife is a trusted leader in biotechnology for the cervid industry. They offer microencapsulated bacteria products that are research supported through Texas Tech University. With more than 30 years of experience and commitment to all natural probiotics, this product line continues to be a mainstay in herd management programs across North America. And the reason is simple. They are passionate about the cervid industry. They have products for elk, whitetail, muleys, red deer, and more. With products ranging from Fawn Paste and Electromax to Guardian Plus, Whitetail Energy Pack, Jumpstart, or their ever-popular Top Score Extreme, they just flat out work. We've been a CNE Wildlife product user for more than 15 years. To learn more about CNE Wildlife, check out episode 54 of North American Deer Talk, a probiotics masterclass with CNE owner Sadie Horrocks, and give her a call today to start using the products we do here. Hey, it's the Deer Wizard, host of North American Deer Talk. I want to tell you about a great new advertising and research platform that we've developed for you, CWDbreeding.com. You know, as the deer industry continues to mature and develop around chronic wasting disease and its known genetic heritability, resources like CWDbreeding.com become essential tools for deer managers across the country making decisions about their herds. I really wanted a platform that excelled at hosting GEBV and codon markers in a filterable and searchable manner, but I also wanted to have high quality pictures, videos, ages, scores, NADAR numbers, and a whole host of other information to go along with that. This database puts everything in one easy to find location and allows you to access the industry's greatest genetic resources. I look forward to seeing all the great bucks that people have to offer in one easy-to-find location, cwdbreeding.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of North American Deer Talk. In the virtual studio today, we have TDA, Texas Deer Association, Executive Director, Kevin Davis. Kevin, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, before we get into the, the topic of today's show, I just want to take a second. Thank you all for watching on YouTube. We appreciate it. Um, if you want to find our podcast, we are everywhere. We're on Amazon Music, Google, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You guys know the deal. Uh, make sure you go ahead and check us out there. So, uh, Kevin, you got a whole bunch of stuff um that's on your plate right now i know it's a busy time you got legislative sessions going on um we got emergency rules we got all sorts of stuff to cover today um i want to start with a little bit of uh who you are maybe some of your your background story because i i think it sets a great context for some of the discussion that we're going to have today uh, you bet uh you know i'm blessed to had a career with the texas parks and wildlife department for 27 years of uh, I got to retire at the rank of assistant director of law enforcement um just had a just had a fantastic uh opportunity to work for the people of the state of Texas uh you know when I got up there at headquarters in a leadership role uh the first 
assignment I got from the executive director at the time, Carter Smith, was to improve relations between Parks and Wildlife and Deer Breeders. Well, it's kind of hard to improve relations without actually creating relationships. So I started uh, visiting with um, the leadership of the Texas Deer Association at the time and uh, and then going around and, and visiting with deer breeders and made some fantastic friends. Uh, we worked together to create some policies. We actually include, included deer breeders in our uh, policy development. We listened to their needs and uh, we actually did improve relations and you know I didn't realize at the time but it opened up a door for me in retirement after that and, and I got a chance to come to work uh, as an advocate for the deer breeding industry uh, upon my retirement yeah that's great um so the there's and and this is a little different in every state so I, I want to touch on how the regulatory uh, bodies interact with the, the deer breeding industry in Texas um some states are ag only, some states are wildlife only, some states are wildlife and ag. So you have two separate regulatory bodies. You got Texas Parks and Wildlife, you have the Texas Animal Health Commission. Tell me how those two interact with, with deer, uh, deer breeding operations in the state of Texas. Uh, yeah, so uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife has uh, authority over, uh, over wildlife in Texas. Uh, and so uh, particularly game animals like like white-tailed deer. Uh, Texas Animal Health has authority over livestock and exotic livestock in Texas, but they're also the um, the veterinary arm, if, if so to speak, and they are the um, disease experts. So they have some authority over uh, uh, epidemiology of certain diseases within all animals in Texas, and then particularly livestock and exotic livestock. Okay. Um, so we, we're going to just jump right into CWD because that, that's the thing that affects deer breeders um, uh, from a regulatory side of, of things the most by far. Um, it's something we, we always talk about on this show and I'd love to hear some of your, your perspectives and interactions that you have with, with the disease and uh, regulatory uh, agencies and policies and stuff. So why don't you walk us through the just the general timeline of chronic waste and disease um, in Texas, and, and then we'll kind of, we'll dig in from there. Okay, so, you know, Texas has been actively searching for chronic waste and disease since 2002, but they found it uh, out in the Waco Mountains and free range mule deer in 2012. Fast forward to 2015, found it uh, for the first time within a breeding facility. And then um, a few detections over a few years since then, and then, um, in 2021, had a pretty significant finding uh, with with several facilities uh, being deemed positive uh, during the spring and summer of 21. Uh, there were there were several issues at play there, but but the biggest issue that created the biggest angst was uh, the the laws and the rules surrounding. Uh, disease testing for movement uh, allowed for the banking of samples, meaning that a uh, sample could be taken at certain point in time of year, but actually not submitted for testing until the report period was over. So they could sit on a shelf for a period of time. And, and, and unfortunately, one of the positive facilities uh, had done that 
it was it wasn't illegal, but they had done that, and and so it caught some folks up, and we and and some disease was moved around unintentionally. In response to that, um, Texas Parks and Wildlife and Animal Health uh, created a a round of rulemaking, if you will, um, and that involved an emergency rule and then a long term rule, and basically what they did was they 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 moved they moved the testing deadlines or the testing submission timelines from uh, no timeline to seven days. So uh, now if you have a mortality within your facility in Texas, you have seven days to get that uh, test submitted to the lab uh, for analysis. Uh, that's uh, the seven day rule is actually a very good rule. Banking of samples is not, um, um, you know, it's not a, um, a good practice. And uh, it, so we have moved in a good direction there with the seven-day rule. Additionally, though, what Parks and Wildlife did was they they, they also said we're going to move to a 100% model, um, meaning we're going to test 100% of our mortalities. And so in Texas, if you have a mortality within your deer breeding pen, you have seven days to turn that test in. You have to catch 100% of your mortalities. Uh, if you don't catch 100% of your mortalities, there is a makeup equation, but it's very costly. It's a five to one anymore to make up. Uh, so, so we have 100% mortality testing. And then also I call it the 100% of 100 model. It's a very difficult model to follow. It's very aggressive. And it's 100% of mortalities and then 100% of all animals you plan to move to a release site. Um, we did not, as an industry, we did not support that move uh, to go to 100% prior to release. Um, and I think the reason we didn't support it is, is just how hard it is on, on the animal staff um, and logistics. And just it, it is a very difficult uh, regulation to follow at 100%. It's, it's, just, it's difficult. However, our industry, and something I'm proud of our industry for complying with, because there was a, a host of factors that would make it even harder to comply with, we can talk about if you'd like. But... Um, our industry in Texas is 100% compliant with that regulation. And uh, and so how that looks moving forward or, or moving into today is, you know, we went over 50,000 tests without a single detection um, on the anti-mortem side of things. So we were really pushing back pretty hard on that um, regulation as it may not be needed because if you, you know, picture if you're flipping a coin 50,000 times, you get the same result. You know, it's, it's pretty easy to assume that you, you might not need that regulation. However, uh, in March, we got some real heavy news in Texas, uh, March of this year, and five new facilities uh, had caught, uh, had detected CWD through anti-mortem testing. And that was in the middle of the legislative session, and our hearts go out to those families uh, and everybody involved with that, it's a, it's, that's, that's horrible news. Um, but the rules did what they were intended to do, meaning they caught the disease and prevented further movement. And what's different now than in the past from, from all other regulatory processes we've had so far in Texas with CWD is we haven't had any data to point towards on how bad the problem is or if it's a if it's an emergency if it's not and a, a, as you're aware of if as everybody's aware of if you follow CWD we we know for a fact that the people that don't support deer breeding 
or anybody that doesn't support deer breeding will use CWD detection as a weapon against the industry itself. And so they weaponize the detections of CWD. And that that's happened that's happened every time we've ever had a detection in Texas, including these detections. So you get the uh, special interest groups that come out and say, hey, we need to stop deer movement. We need to shut down deer breeding. We need to do all that. And 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 now we have data to support the fact that that's not needed. That's not appropriate response. Um, have a, a ton of scientific data that suggests that even within deer breeding pens, uh, CWD prevalence is very, very, very low. And um, and so, you know, it, it is hard to it's hard to argue with the data. Like now we're up to over 60,000 tests. We have very few detections, meaning the problem is very, very um, minor. Um, and I don't want to I don't want to overuse that word because it's major to everybody that's got CWD. Yeah, don't get me wrong there. It's that's horrible. But from a standpoint of, you know, do we have CWD running running around all over our herds in Texas? That the answer is no. Um, and scientifically, no. And so, you know, I want I think that what I want to point out about the progression of regulation of CWD in Texas is we're at a different we're at a different, better moment in time now than we were in 2015 or even 2021. We have much more data now to, to, to support the fact that the rules are working as intended and wholesale change is not needed, particularly not emergency rule change. So I just want to recap a couple of those, those items. So from, uh, you had some detections in 2021 this emergency rule and then long-term rule for uh, live live testing was put in place. You go two years, basically, do 50,000 live tests, no detections, and then you start to find a few just in this, this you know, past year or so. Um, why, I mean, do you, do you have a sense of, or are they using the live test as a, a way just to obviously you know you want to use it to find the disease but is is there any outside of that are there there benefits to it um in its its detection right so like you have a you have a, a positive that you find obviously you're stopping the spread of the disease but like what happens then i mean are we still in the eradication mode or depopulation mode like where do those herd plans go or what are you seeing on that end yeah, no, we're, uh, that's a great question. So, you know, typically the, the response from TBWD and animal health is to suggest <laughs> depopulation. That's the typical response. We have one farm uh, out in West Texas that's, that's, that's taken a different approach. They've, they've been very aggressive. They're using Dr. Seabury's um, GEBV values and, 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 and doing some serious testing and culling within their herd to try to actually clean up their herd. We are very optimistic about their program. Uh, and they have, you know, they have tested their entire herd. Fascinating story. They can't find another case of CWD on their, on their mm -hmm. facility. It's, it's, it's just amazing. Um, and so we're very hopeful that that, that study and that case, that, that case continues to develop in a positive way for them. Uh, we believe it's the start of a new playbook. We believe that it, um, that it may create a different pathway for 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 facilities that that get bad news. Uh, along those lines, though, you know, we did detect CWD a couple of weeks ago in another facility. So now we've had six detections this this spring, 
and uh, and it's just you know it's horrible news again. But um, overwhelmingly, or not overwhelmingly, normally the the suggestion is going to be depopulation for from a disease prevention um, and management standpoint. And so this session, we were we 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 were just successful uh, this week um, getting a bill through both chambers of the House and the Senate, uh, Senate Bill thirteen seventy two. And what that what that bill did was uh, it shifted the burden of the cost of a depopulation back to the state of Texas instead of the uh, instead of the permitted breeder. So in the past, uh, a breeder's gotten bad news about. CWD and been told that that you know that depopulation is the method that it's going to be taken, and then being told, hey, we're going to leave you a bill when we're done too, and it's just very it's a heaping on of bad news. And so, um, you know, the TDA, its leadership team, its lobbyists um, have been working the last couple of years extensively to uh, to develop a a strong rapport. With our legislative body down in Austin, Texas, and we've uh, we've spent time with the oversight committees, particularly with the chairs of the oversight committees, uh, Senator Perry's office, uh, with the Senate Ag Water and Rural Affairs Committee, and um, uh, Representative Ashby's office. But he's the chair of uh, uh, Culture, Recreation, and Tourism, which is also oversees Parks and Wildlife. And so we worked with those offices and. And it wasn't something we worked with just during a session. Uh, both John True and I have been working for the last two years um, since the last session to try to get in a a, a good place, um, a a reasonable place with our 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 state representation at the Capitol. And so, you know, we've spent a a bunch of time explaining, you know that we want to be a productive stakeholder and that we understand regulation and we understand regulatory needs. And we, we certainly don't want to move CWD around. And, and we just, uh, we just been, you know, building that rapport and maintaining a reasonable approach with all these um, legislators and, um, and regulatory bodies. And, and so we see that coming uh, to fruition this, this, uh, this session, uh, Senator Perry helped, you know, he, he authored the bill but he helped orchestrate its passage by getting a bunch of stakeholders in a room saying, Hey, we really want to move in this direction. We want y'all to work this out. And what was interesting about that is, is parks and wildlife and animal health were, were instrumental in actually creating the language of the bill. So we've had a, we've, we've, we've had a, a, a good deal of success and it's a small move in the right direction, meaning, you know, it's an olive branch to the industry. And I, and I believe that it's, it's because of the level of compliance that the industry has, has demonstrated and, and moved towards uh, with a, with a hard and tough regulation to follow, but um, it, it's the right thing to do. And, and, and no longer the heaping on of bad news, already horrible news. If, 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 a, if a breeding facility draws a black bean, but um but at least now, if they've been compliant with with the laws and regulations, uh, that they they're not going to receive a bill if they have to depopulate. And so that's yeah. that, that's after, that's going to the governor's desk uh, for his signature, and it will be effective once he signs it. I expect him to sign it soon, and um, and you know we, we're appreciative of that bill. Yeah, it's it's um, for for those that you know haven't dealt with. Um, you know, legislation before 
it's it's everything's baby steps right things things take time i that bill it wasn't whipped up in a in a night and stuffed through uh, committees and stuff like those to your point you know those relationships take time to nurture and policy just takes time to filter through um you know a thoughtful debate and and that's that's a good thing that's how the process is supposed to work and it can be frustrating when you have a you know, a, a relatively politicized, uh, you know, regulatory environment around chronic waste and disease that's emotional on, you know, both sides of the fence, so to speak. Um, so, you know, good, good job on you guys, you know, working with them. And, and that's a, you know, those, you take any win you can get, right? That's, oh, yeah. And yeah, it was interesting about that whole process was it was unanimous at both the, uh, both the oversight committees, um, voted it out of committee to the full vote of the Senate and the House um, in a unanimous vote. And that was just incredible. Yeah, it's and and I I I can almost promise you that if if there was um if there was folks that were um doing things they weren't supposed to and you didn't have that hundred hundred percent compliance that they just they they don't take industries like that seriously. Right. right. You show on your end that you know, you're compliant, however, however tough that is. And, and it, it, like, it's like you said, it, it pays dividends, right? Like, right. That's, that's how those relationships were built. Um, so governor is going to sign that, that should provide potentially a little bit of, of relief, hopefully, um, and provide some, some changes to how the industry operates in these, um, these situations. I'd like to step outside of the industry and just jump into wildlife to, to add some additional context to um, chronic waste and disease regulation. How in the wild, when they detect a a wild positive, because they're, they're they do find those, what is done? Because we we heard the we heard the deer breeding side of things. Like you're looking at all of your animals being killed. What happens outside of the fence in in the free range settings or in the wild settings? Yeah, that is a that's a great question. So there, the, you know, obviously, uh, we are advocating for a a a new playbook where where those answers are more readily available. Right now, the um, the answer to your question is simply a, a, a surveillance zone is put in place. Uh, the uh, a containment zone is put in place around the property that 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 the deer was detected on. A surveillance zone is put in place uh, for two miles around that facility. Um, and then largely um, the rules within a, a surveillance zone include um, carcass movement restrictions and testing requirements for hunter harvested animals. Um, what's interesting about the current process uh, in, in Texas in a free range setting is once a surveillance zone has been established, it's never been taken away. So we've had surveillance zones in Texas since 2012. We've never had one removed. Um, the, the public is, is growing tired of that. I believe the Texas Parks and Wildlife Commission is growing tired of that. And there need, and, and there's a, there's a vision for a need for some kind of end game. Like, are we going to, uh, learn to live with CWD or are we going to somehow manage CWD? Uh, the only place that CWD is being managed in Texas right now is inside a breeding facility. It's not being managed uh, in the, in, in a free range setting at all. And so, What's what's frustrating about that, and you know, if you look at testing histories, um, the way that the testing statistics are done in Texas, 
it, it's such a low rate on the free range side of things and such a high rate. You know, I talked about a hundred percent of a hundred uh, in a breeding facility. So we, we tip, we, we, we basically test a hundred percent of our animals right now. It, we test hundred percent of our mortalities. And if we're going to move an animal to a release site, we test it. So we're testing at hundred percent Texas. If you look, you can look at um, free range statistics in, in a couple of formats. But if you take, let's just take the hunting this last year's hunting season, uh, parks and wildlife uh, did about 17,000 both hunter harvested and road killed tests of free range deer. 17,000. Uh, we harvest about 850,000 in Texas. So that if you, if you look at it against the harvest, that's a 2% testing rate on a harvest while breeders are testing at a hundred percent. So if you if you look at that, um, obviously at a hundred percent, you're going to, you're going to detect the disease more often than when you're testing at 2%. So it's always going to point a finger towards a deer breeder, but we know that CWD is a naturally occurring disease. And we know there's a, a, a prevalence rate that's probably at least as high as the prevalence rate is in a, a breeding facility. And, and in both situations, the, the prevalence rate in Texas is very, very low. Um, but the, the way the testing is set up, it's always going to point a finger to where the detection is going to occur in a breeding facility first. But it, it's it's even a little more skewed than that if you really want to take a, a closer look at it, because 17,000 of, you know, 800, 17,000 uh, sample size of 850,000 um, uh, harvest size is one way to look at it. But if you look at it against the population data, we're talking about 17,000 out of 5.7 million deer. So that's 0.002%, not, not 2%, but two thousandths of a percent. It's a crazy low number against the population. And again, you're talking about 100% of a population within these pens. So it's pretty easy to see that, that the detection is, is going to occur most often inside a breeding facility if you assume uh, similar uh, prevalence rates. So, you know, it's, that's a frustrating point. And I think the reason I raise that point is because everybody would love to blame CWD on something or somebody. But the fact of the matter is it's a naturally occurring disease. And the answer to it in our lifetime, our kids' lifetime or their lifetime, is sitting inside a breeder pen right now. Breeders are going to solve this disease um, and they're going to solve it in the pens first and they're going to influence the pasture and um, they'll influence the pasture at a much faster rate than the pasture can influence itself. Uh, and you can take a look at that across Texas. And, and when you look at, uh, you know, the, the fact that land is fragmenting in Texas at an unreal rate due to population increase uh, and, you know, um, airship change and everything else but you know the average release site size in texas the median release site size in texas is 500 acres or less and so there's always going to be a need uh to influence the genetics in in those smaller pastures and and deer breeding is is going to be needed <laughs> by hunters um in texas from now on so I, I hope there's a way for us to capitalize on the fact that you know we have something to offer. Deer breeders have some, have the most to offer for influencing CWD in a positive rate, way around this country. So.
Yeah, I think I think that's well said, and it's a great segue into um, a, a question that I have that I continue to ask myself and always ask others. Um, it, it's because I get asked this question the most um, when I when I go up to our capital here in Pennsylvania, or when I talk with with hunters, and it's it's what are deer breeders doing about CWD? You want to touch on some of the the kind of promising uh, science and, and research that we see coming out at, at really breakneck speeds. I mean, we got the live test whipped up pretty quick. Um, I think increased diagnostics are, are a part of the solution uh, in some cases, not how they're being weaponized today, but certainly as, as part of a, a health strategy and um, perhaps some of the, the genetic work. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, we, we're seeing, we're seeing, you know, science is improving daily, just like you said. Um, I'm fascinated by Dr. Seabury's studies and his work. Um, you know, I, I equate that to the same approach as, as the sheep and goat farmers use to solve scrapie. It's a very similar deal. We, you're, you're genetically looking at uh, ways to create resistance and these uh, these genetic scores that that Seabury is working on through his GEBV model is just fascinating. Um, and so then you you look at that at a at a ground level approach and you see the the folks out in Uvalde that uh, that detected positive back in twenty one, uh, and you know they chose to uh, proactively live test their entire herd. They chose to um, uh, remove animals that had been in close contact within within pens and adjacent pens, uh, and you see this deer, this 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 buck deer that was there for a couple of years, uh, positive, and no other animals in the facility are positive, and um, and so they've gone through a tremendous um, aggressive culling of deer that were in adjacent pens, and then live testing, and we're looking at now they have, they have, you know, they have not been able to detect another positive animal in their facility. They have a herd plan uh, through parks and wildlife and animal health right now. That's going to allow them to start releasing deer on their release side again, as early as the hunting season of 24. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a new, a new way to deal with CWD and, and this in this particular study, if it remains successful, which we are very hopeful that it will, um, is actually cleaned up that herd and proven that the herd has got resistance now. And you know, it's um, if if it if it if it stays successful, it's it's a game changer for for the industry and, and for the future. It's it's really interesting because like if you look at if you look at the hunting market, the the demand upon uh, deer breeders has always been for uh, new genetics to increase that hunting opportunity and and provide for better you know better genetics to to make bigger bucks right like that's that's what we we we're good at right we're we're good at making um, deer that provide this this great experience for people uh, and something that we all love. I find it really. Uh, even more interesting that the same uh, type of model will be used for uh, genetic resistance to chronic wasting disease as a another building block in the approach to to stocking genetics. It's just amazing that we now have this technology that that adds 
another great benefit to uh, the deer breeders in in the state of Texas. It's absolutely fascinating. It's it's it, you know you equate it to okay for years we've we've bred for traits we can see, and now we're breeding for still breeding for traits we can see, but we're also breeding for things that we need that are not easy to see, not easy to understand. Um, but we you know it's it's a it's a it's the first time we've had in my in my opinion it's the first time we've had hope to to have some layer of insurance uh within our herds that we're not going to draw that black bean and um i you know i think we're just a few years away from 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 being resistant to the point where we're not going to have detections in texas deer breeding facilities anymore um i really i really believe we're headed that direction and so yeah it, yeah that's it's it's excellent to hear that and i i think um you know, e even if there are detections, um, we're at a point where we have the tools to deal with those. And and like just like the uh, Uvalde operation that you you had mentioned, you know, we're we're able to clean those herds up, and and folks can continue on doing doing business. Um, because when you look at when you look at um, deer ranching, not only in in Texas but across the nation, um, the the not only the economic impact that it provides for communities, but the the uh, social benefits that it has for outdoor recreation, uh, through hunting, uh, land management, conservation, those types of things. It can't be understated. And, and I think if we can unshackle ourselves from chronic waste disease, um, the disease itself, and that regulatory kind of yoke that's been holding us in place, I think number one, you're going to see a, a a boom in the in the general um, uh, breeding industry. But I think the expansion of of um, high fence hunting will will continue to go on. I think there's a lot of folks on the sideline that are are a little uncomfortable with where things are today, and and I think that it's a a major shot in the arm for for uh, North America and and whitetail deer generally to have us um, get this problem fixed up and and really kind of move on from it. And, and I think, I think, like you said, I think we're close. I think we're a lot closer than people think. And, um, you know, I look, I look forward to kind of seeing where, you know, where things go from, from here. Absolutely. That's well said. Um, anything else before we wrap up? I think we hit a lot of the, a lot of the major stuff, anything else on the, you know, legislative regulatory front that, that we, that we missed. Well, so, um, you know, we, I mentioned that that CWD gets weaponized against the industry, um, and we are experiencing some of that right now. Uh, that you know, uh, we know uh, both John True and I sit on uh, what's called CWD task force here in Texas, um, and it's made up of obvious stakeholders from all sides of the equation, and um, uh, you know they meet pretty regular. And as a result of these recent detections, they they've They've called a new meeting uh, on May the 11th. Uh, and so what we know from history with 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 these detections is, uh, you know, uh, a call to action, so to speak, from uh, certain stakeholders uh, demanding that TPWD clamp down even harder on deer breeders you know, uh, through regular regulations. Uh, we we know that they're going to that they have written letters requesting uh, 
harsher regulations or, or, or more stringent regulations. We have uh, rebutted those letters with, with data that we have. Uh, but, but we are basically going to that meeting on the 11th, knowing that there's going to be a proposal for some level of rule change. We don't know exactly what that looks like. Um, but we, um, we continue to advocate through our, our represent, I mean, through our, um, our lobbyists, through our representation on on the various uh, advisory boards, and just through our relationships with the commission and with with staff at the regulatory bodies, and and then with with members of other organizations, that you know we have more data now than we've ever had um, relating to testing and testing history and and what prevalence rate looks like in both Texas uh, in free range settings and in in in, in breeder settings, and so we are hopeful that the data will. More or less speak for itself and 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 show that wholesale change, or at least drastic change, is not needed. That the rules are doing what they're supposed to do; they're functioning as intended. And what's interesting about the discussions we've had so far is we get a lot of head nods. We get a lot of you know you, that makes sense. We get a lot of uh, we we've had a tremendous amount of support from state legislature. Legislature, as you know, we've sat down with every office that has any level of oversight. Uh, on our industry and said, hey, you know, the rules did what they're supposed to do and 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 hundred percent agreeance that that's what's that's what's happened. And so, you know, we we're carrying some momentum into these discussions that I, that we're hopeful will um will keep will allow cooler heads to prevail on discussions about reg regulatory issues. Kevin, I appreciate you coming on today and 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 chatting about this stuff. It's I I I always joke with with guests like I hope one day we can come on and maybe talk some deer and some hunting as opposed to talking about chronic wasting disease regulation and politics. Um, but with that said, I appreciate you coming on. Um, this platform is always open for for you guys, and I, I, again, you're, you, I appreciate the work that you guys are doing there. Uh, keep it up. I appreciate you, sir. Thank you very much. With that, stay tuned for another episode of North American Deer Talk.